We're going to be in Esther's chapter 6 and 7, and if you're watching with us online, um, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Bethel Bible Church. Um, let's see, how would I start? So, we've been looking at Esther. We've been looking at this story in the Old Testament. It's the last um, book of what we would call the Old Testament history. It comes just before the book of Job, which begins what we would call the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and then that's followed by the prophets. And so, Esther comes right here at the end of the history recorded in the Old Testament. Now, the thing that's unique about Esther, and we said this early on, is that of all the books written in the Old Testament and New Testament and all the stories that are told, this is the story that does not mention the name of God. In fact, it doesn't even really subtly um, talk about God. There's no prayer. There's no miracles. There's no um, word from God or revelation. And if you were to read this in a vacuum, you would think that these people had no religion at all, that they had no real faith at all, except for when you, when you slowed down and you began to walk through it, you realize that the author has perfectly and purposefully veiled the presence of God. It's not that God's presence isn't here. It's just he, as the author, has not made visible the invisible God. God is, is just off stage. He's, he's just behind the scenes. And yet, in all of these things, you realize, oh yeah, somebody else is working here. Someone else has, um, has a will that is being executed throughout this story. We left off in um, chapter 5 last week, and, and it was um, Haman, who is the bad guy, if you will, um, was building a gallow in which to hang Mordecai, which for all intents and purposes in this book is the good guy. And a gallow was, uh, it was built six stories high and essentially made of wood. It was a tall beam, and you would either impale or hang someone on top of the gallow until they died. And Haman, the bad guys, waiting until morning to get the, queen, the king's blessing to hang the good guy, Mordecai, and that's where we left off. And yet, I, I want to begin, there's this old song, Aretha Franklin sang it, Diana Ross, um, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, even Rod Stewart uh, covered the song. It's, a, it's an old, bluesy, jazzy song. What a difference a day makes. It says, what a difference a day made. 24 little hours brought the sun and the flowers where there used to be rain. It goes on to talk about what a difference a day can make. Well, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see in Esther chapter 6 and chapter 7 the difference that a day made, a difference a day made in the kingdom of the world and a difference a day made for the people of God. So if you'll begin with me, I'm in chapter 6, verse 1. You want to think in terms of we are going to see the vindication of Mordecai and the humiliation of Haman. Here's how it goes. Chapter 6, verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds 
the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So this is a turning point. Of all the different turning points in Esther, this is probably the turning point, the most significant one. Everything kind of hinges on this one sleepless night of the king. And you see in this story the coincidences continue to pile up. It just so happens this night the king can't sleep. So he goes to his servant. He says, hey, bring, bring me, uh, uh, read, read to me from the Chronicles, the memorable deeds. And if you were wanting, it's like, uh, it'd be like reading through the old congressional record. It'd be like if you can't sleep, you start watching reruns of C-SPAN. This, this is what we're talking about, okay? And it just so happens that this servant picks this volume and pulls it down and begins to read in this place. Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai, this goes back to the end of chapter 2, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's units, eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We also know him as King Xerxes. And the king said... Well, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? So if you remember chapter 2, Mordecai uncovers the plot. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. They investigate it. It was found to be true. They put these two guys to death, and yet it's written in the Chronicles and forgotten about. Mordecai receives no thank you, no tribute. Well, the king's young men who attended him said, well, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, well, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, well, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So the king, he, listen, he knows something ought to be done. But as you see, as we've seen in the story, the, the, the king, King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, he never makes a decision for himself. It's, it's one of the devices the author is using to show us that this all-powerful king, this, this emperor of this mighty empire in the world, he really has no real power at all. He can never make a decision for himself. So he wants to know who's there and enter Haman, and it just so happens, Haman's come in, he's probably whistling, whistling a little tune, anticipating the king's going to rubber stamp his request to execute Mordecai on his fancy new gallow that he just had built overnight. Huge pole set up. All he needs is the king's permission, but he first must attend to the king's business. The king's summoned him in now. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? So it's the most wonderful window into Haman's soul right here, right? I mean, he can't imagine anybody else would get more honor than he would. I mean, he believes that the world, the empire, um, everything that goes on around him is there to revolve around his ego. And so because he believes that this is about him, he's going to take this, you know, so what should be done to the man that the king wants to honor? 
So Haman's thinking, this is my chance. This is what I've been waiting on. So he's going to kind of big up, if you will, what ought to be done. Verse 7, and, the, and Haman said to the king, for the man who delights, uh, whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, the ones the king has worn, and the horse that the king's ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Now, don't miss the humor in that. He's not talking about wearing a crown for himself. He's talking about riding a horse who wears a crown. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead on horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What you have here is what you'd call a conversation of cross purposes. See, we as the readers know more than the two people in a conversation. We, we know that they don't understand each other. It's kind of like, uh, you know, watching Abbott and Costello talk about who's on first, right? If the king had realized that Haman was intending all of these things for himself, it would have bordered on treason. I mean, so to wear the king's robe and to ride the king's horse and to be led publicly around the street comes very close to a man saying he wants the throne for himself. I mean, he already was the number two in the empire. He already had the king's ring, his signet. He had the king's favor. He had everything, but he wanted more. You can go back to 1 Samuel 18, you see Saul's son, Jonathan, puts the robes and the crown on David as a sign that says, I'm, I'm not the successor. He's the successor. It's a royal honor. What Haman's doing is he's coming as close as one possibly can to claiming equality with the most powerful man on earth. Maybe we would say it this way. He considers equality with the king something to be grasped. To use the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. It reveals his proud heart. Well, verse 10. You, you can hardly believe it, but you knew it was coming. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and leave out nothing that you mentioned. So a couple of things I want you to know. So first of all, Ahasuerus, the king, King Xerxes, he knows Mordecai's a Jew, which reminds us that when you were in chapter 3, and Haman goes to the king to talk about this plot to get rid of these people that were a threat to the king. He never mentioned to the king who they actually were. 
He never told the king they were Jews. And in fact, what he told them is, hey, listen, we want them to be destroyed. But he used a word that sounded a lot like enslaved. The king goes, hey, Haman, I trust you. Here's my ring. Make it, you know, make it so. In all reality, what Haman was doing was manipulating, deceiving the king, takes his signet, writes a decree that's crystal clear. He wants to destroy, annihilate, exterminate the Jews. Certainly, King Xerxes didn't know that. And of all the funny moments in this book, and there are a lot of funny moments, this one right here, this verse 10, this is the best. Go once. There's a there's an immediacy, there's a precision, just like you said, and then there's a warning, don't forget to do any of the things that you said. And all of this is heaping the coals of shame upon this self-centered Haman. But the king is commanded, and Haman must obey. Look at verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Can you imagine, just picture Haman's enthusiasm here, right? Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. What's that, Haman? We can't hear you. I don't think it would have been lost on everyone who heard those words. See, Haman thought he he could grasp at equality with the majesty He discovers to his amazement it's going to be Mordecai the Jew that gets exalted. Mordecai, who doesn't grasp at greatness, it's been bestowed upon him, and our ears perk up when we hear that, doesn't, doesn't it? The kingdom of God principle, you know? It's like this light that's that's sneaking in under the door of a dark room here. Well, verse 12, look at what it says. It says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He, he, he's not going to be bothered. His life is not disrupted with a little bit of honor. He goes back to where he was before. He resists all the temptation to say, hey, you remember, did you just see me? Did you just see me going through the deal? He, took, um, he, 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 he takes no advantage of the situation personally. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, Don't miss the contrast that the last time we saw people mourning, it was Mordecai in front of the king's gate, mourning and sackcloth and ashes and wailing because he's just found out that his people are to be annihilated. And here you find Haman mourning because his pride has been shattered. Don't miss the contrast. What do you care about the most? What would cause you to mourn? Verse 13, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. These are the people that had counseled him to go ahead and build the gallows for Mordecai. Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. To which Mordecai's probably thinking, you know, or Haman's probably thinking, you, you could have 
You could have told me that last night. It's interesting to find these words on the lips of these foreigners. And yet you see it throughout the Old Testament all the time where the foreign people, they get a glimpse of God's people realizing who they must belong to, this covenant God who brings them through the Red Sea and across the Jordan and into the promised land whose prophets continue to write of the faithfulness of this one true God. And the wife, Zeresh, and the wise men say, listen, I don't know that we know much, but we know that if you've gone against one of these Jewish people, you will not prevail. But it's all too late now. Everything's speeding up. Haman's out of control. This guy who's a man of power and a man of initiative he finds himself on his heels, about to be hurried away to a banquet with the queen. Look at verse 14. And while they were talking with him, yet the king's eunuchs arrived, hurried him to bring, um, hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And if you flash back to chapter 1, the eunuchs had gone to get Vashti, the queen. She refused to come. It turned out bad for her. Haman knows if you're sent, if, if, the, if the word is sent, you're requested by the king, you have to go. You have no choice. What a difference a day can make. You ever had that experience? You get to the end of a day and you realize I, there is no way when I woke up this morning I could have possibly conceived either what was going to go right or go wrong with the day that you just had. I had one of those this week. It reminds us this. The hidden hand of God is powerfully at work. No human strategy or plan could have engineered these events as they unfolded. This king's sleepless night right here in the middle of the story at the perfect time in the perfect place embodies this humbling fact. You're not in control. but it is a glorious truth. God is in control. He can be trusted with all these things. Well, look at how chapter 7 begins. So the king and Haman, they went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, king said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? This is now the third time he's asked her, it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And it's, it's this third time she makes her wish. It's another day. It's another banquet, another promise. It's not entirely sure that she knows all that has happened in the, in the last day with, with, with Mordecai and with Haman to bring the events to where they are. A lot, a lot has changed in this world for her. And here she goes in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered. We talk about it. There's a, there's a, um, a principle in journalism where um, they say, journalists will say to each other, editors will say to writers, don't bury the lead. 
which means don't go on about a bunch of stuff until you finally get to what you're going to talk about. And this is a perfect example of Esther not burying the lead. Look at what she says. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Want to know what I want? Will you save my life and the life of my people? She goes on. Esther's done her homework. She knows what's happened. She knows the king has been duped. So she says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, like you believed that was going to happen, you believed we were going to be sold as slaves, what Haman was doing was really buying us so he could kill us. That's what she's saying. If we'd been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. Far afflictions not to be compared with the loss to the king. This loss she's speaking of is the reputation of the king because now it is evident to him and to everyone around he has been deceived. She says about her people, they're my people. Save me, save my people. She echoes all that Haman had planned. She's done her homework, and yet she masterfully leads the king to the realization that he has been deceived. It, she, she lets the truth dawn on him. And so in verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, well, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose from his wrath in verse 7, arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king gets up in a rage. He's so angry, he has to clear his head. He has to think, how in the world did this happen to me? He goes out into the garden, no doubt, trying to discern why and how in the world this happened to him and how in the world is he going to punish Haman? The reality is this, the king is in a precarious situation. You see, it's his name that's on the edict that was sent out by Haman. To punish Haman for this would be for the king to admit that he was responsible for this heinous crime or that he was the one who had been manipulated. Either way, it would be a humiliation. 
Haman is in a difficult position because he finds the king's angry. He's going to the garden. He can't follow the king. That would be bad. He can't flee out another door. He would be arrested by the guards. And in that day, if the king left the presence of the queen, every other male was immediately supposed to vacate their presence too because you could not be as a man in the presence of the queen without the king there. Thus, that's why the eunuchs attended the queen. Here the queen is alone with Haman that would have immediately meant Haman's death, but to make it worse, look at what happens. And the king returned from the palace in verse 8 to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king, and they covered Haman's face. King returns back to the banquet hall, Haman falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And I'm sure the king now looks back and goes, oh, he has my ring. He has my favor. He wanted my robes. He wanted my crown. Now he wants my queen. Now he has his reason that he can punish Haman. You see, it's, un it's unthinkable that that is what Haman intended. He was not trying to assault the queen. He just found himself in a terrible situation at a terrible point. In fact, the old Jewish commentators in a in a commentaries called the Targum, they said it was probably the angel Gabriel that gave Haman a little push at the end. Probably not. But the king was looking for a reason to condemn Haman. He walks in and he finds it. And then in verse 9, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, Mr. Helpful, says, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai King, if you look just out there, you really can't miss it. It's six feet high, this beam that he erected. He's prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, and standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. There's justice, and then every now and then there's poetic justice. And that's what this is. The gallows, by the way, mean a tree or a, a beam. Those gallows were constructed with wood by the contractors, but more than that, they were constructed by the pride of Haman, a monument to his self-importance, a testimony of his own glory. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai and the wrath of the king abated. You know, here's the irony. Of all the things that Haman was guilty of, and he was guilty of a lot, he was guilty of pride, he was guilty of an evil scheme, he was guilty of being a hater of the Jews, he was guilty of just being a rotten person who connived and manipulated all for his own purposes to make his own name big. And of all the things that he's guilty of, he's actually hung on the gallow for something he's not guilty of. And that is assaulting the queen. See, Mordecai is going to be vindicated. 
Haman's going to be humiliated. And it feels like here, if this were a movie and the story was coming to an end, you'd see the music swell, you'd focus on Mordecai, and the credits would begin to roll. The problem is, there's three more chapters. Part of you says, well, no, this is where the story ends. Haman got what was coming to him. Mordecai received the honor that he deserved. So we breathe a sigh of relief. And then all of a sudden we remember the people of God are still in danger. The decree of Haman is still intact. There is a day of a purge of the Jews set out in the future and the clock is ticking and every Jew in the kingdom still dwells under the valley of the shadow of a terrible death that awaits them. And so we remember that the story is not over. The personal crisis for Mordecai has passed for the moment, but the story is not over. In the final episode, we look at the verse, the chapters next week, we'll see, we'll see that there's a, a vindication for all that's coming. We'll look to the cross. We'll look to the resurrection. We'll make a connection with all that Jesus has done for every believer. And yet we're left here. A moment of satisfaction But the true danger, the true threat has not been resolved. Let me ask you this. Haman finds himself in some ways by his own making thrown in with a little bit of irony. He finds himself in a place where he cannot escape the king's judgment. And if you're like me, you read the story and you think, you know, good. Haman's getting what he deserves. It's about time that sorry rat got what he had coming. But if we're truly drawn into the story, it ought to make us really uncomfortable is how much like Haman we really are. We're prideful. We're unsatisfied. We can have everything possibly one could want in the world, and yet the slightest offense renders it all for nothing. We're people who by nature do not like others who see things differently than we do. Haman could not escape the judgment of the king. How about you? How do you and I escape the judgment of our king? Well, we need somebody to intercede. It has to be somebody better than Esther is. I mean, it's one thing for Esther to ask the king 
to spare the innocent Jews who did nothing to receive Haman's um, hateful and evil decree. But it is quite another thing when you begin interceding for or pleading for someone who is clearly guilty. We need someone better than Esther. And the great news is we have them. Jesus, the Son of God, came, comes to intercede for us. And we know he's better than Esther because Jesus says not, hey, tear down those gallows that we have built with our own pride. Jesus comes and says, I tell you what, you take a seat. I'll climb up to the gallows. I'll be impaled. I'll be nailed to your cross. The one made of wood but built with your pride and your sin and your hatred. Ultimately, we find that's how Jesus wins. Colossians chapter 2, it's through the cross. He ends up canceling our debt. He disarms death. He triumphs. He, he, he triumphs over judgment. He triumphs over death. He triumphs over the enemy. There's no more accusations um, uh, that, that, that can be made against you because he's taken them all and he won. You were dead in your sins, but he takes your judgment and you are made alive. And that's how God wins in the end. See, in Esther, it takes her four or five or eight or nine years of preparation that leads to one day of drama that turns the world upside down. In the, in the story of human history, it is centuries awaiting, followed by a birth, followed by 30 years of silence, and then three years of, mi of ministry, and then three years of agony on a cross, followed by three years later, three days later, a resurrection. At the cross, Jesus won the definitive victory over Satan, over evil, over enmity. His death disarms the powers and authorities and makes a public example of them. And because of his death, we find he is exalted to the highest place in the universe and given a name above every name, and now Christ is raised and ascended and seated at the right hand of God, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and he says about you, if you believe in him, you are mine. And the New Testament says you are in Christ, and he is in you. Well, let me ask you this morning, what would happen if we really believed that. I mean, what would happen if, if we weren't just inspired in the moment or our affections are stirred, but what if we really, really, really believed that in our life? Realizing that we were enemies of God, but Jesus goes to the gallows in our place. What would happen if we really believed it. So I'm going to offer three things. This is, I'm not telling you what to do. I want to, I want to encourage you this morning in how to think. The story's 2,500 years old and it could have been written last week. If you really believe that this has happened, 
the kind of change that it brings in those that believe is that you're willing to love your enemies. You're willing to love those who see things differently than you, even to the point where it begins to stir your passions and you feel anger rise to the surface if you really believe that Jesus went to the gallows in your place, it ought to cause us to pause for one moment and go, oh yeah, I sinned so bad that Jesus had to die and I'm no better. And not only that, Jesus went to the cross for that person too. And so instead of standing up and making my post and declaring my stand that my opinion is right, the way I see things is right, it would cause us for one moment to shut our mouth, to love our neighbor and to love our enemies. Secondly, I think it would help us to walk in humility instead of the pride that we're so prone to, right? Listen, I'm, I'm encouraging you how to think as much as I'm encouraging me. That we'd walk in humility instead of pride. We'd realize we're not that big a deal after all. All things are by him and through him and for him. All things. I think it would help us to understand a little more about what it means to love our neighbor, a little more about what it means to walk in humility. And finally, I would say this. It would help us to understand if we really believed this, that we are to intercede on behalf of others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know what Paul says about those who are believers? You've been given a title. You've been given a job. You know what it is? You're an ambassador of the gospel. You're an ambassador. You've been sent by the king from the kingdom into this other world that we find ourselves in as ambassadors of the gospel, reconcilers, those that are here to broker peace. We are his ambassadors. We're ministers of reconciliation. We're peacemakers between God and man and man and one another. And at the end of the day, we come to realize as our pride is crushed and our humility is nurtured, that my opinion, my rights, the way I view things is so insignificant to the beauty of the gospel. And I know, I know. Some of you will say, I have said, Ross, I know all that stuff, but listen, there's not anything we can do, and we all know how the book ends. The world's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to come back. To which I would say, you know what, I'll grant you that. That is how the world is going to go. 
things are only going to get worse, except you missed one part. The world may get worse. The church, we're called to holiness. We're called to sanctification. The world may burn around us, but we are to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We do not get worse. The darker it gets, the brighter we should shine. Our allegiance is with no power in this world. Our allegiance is to the king who took our place on the gallows so that we, we might look like him. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, I pray you would do what only you can do. That by your spirit you would do a work through your word in our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray you'd convict us in the places we're stubborn and we're prideful. Father, I pray you'd so lovingly confront our arrogance and melt us into humility. Father, would you give us ears to hear? And and help us to keep our mouths closed when we should not be speaking words. Father, grant us a heart to love our enemy, whoever it is that we have cast as our enemy. Give us the courage to walk in humility. And Father, give us an urgency to be ambassadors of your reconciliation, that we would walk out of here not just with something to say, not with just a nice thought, but Father, we would walk out of here this morning encouraged, empowered by your Spirit to act. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus.